I'm, uh, I always, I'm a little bit worried when I get invited to come to this meeting. What am I going to talk about? I'm not a security person. A lot of the stuff you talk about is like Chinese to me, quite frankly. Um, and I don't do stuff on terrorism or anything like that. I'm a philosopher. Uh, and my, I have some interests which are uh, perhaps somewhat related to the, the concerns here. But they, Bruce and Ross keep inviting me back, so I must be addressing something near to the right topics. Uh, I want to talk to you today about some work in progress, really new stuff that I've been getting into. And when I say really new, I mean like two weeks old. Right, so this is stuff I'm just working out. And what it is, it's a, a, a new and I think a significantly significant new wrinkle on my work on dehumanization. The relevance of dehumanization, of course, is uh, that dehumanization is a psychological process which facilitates mass violence, particularly genocidal violence. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to very briefly summarize my approach to dehumanization the way I theorize it, and then I'm going to describe to you a critique of this style of theory, and then I'm going to briefly suggest a response to that critique. So, the word dehumanization is used very widely, both in the scholarly literature and in the popular media, and it's used to mean a lot of different things. And it's accumulated lots of meaning since its introduction in uh, in 1818. Uh, here's a list of some of them. These are some of the main senses of dehumanization in the literature. I confine myself to number five, the one in bold. So when I talk about dehumanization, I mean conceiving of others as subhuman creatures, typically evoking horror, dread, or disgust. Now, how do we theorize this? This is a well-known phenomenon. It's very widely accepted to be uh, a phenomenon that we find in genocide and war and other forms of mass atrocities. Well, I'm going to use these two texts here to kind of motivate my analysis. The text up the, on, the, on the left, on your left, was published in 1685 by an extraordinary man named Morgan Godwin who was a, uh, a clergyman, an Anglican clergyman, and a civil rights campaigner in the colonies, in, in New England. Uh, and he wrote this, this book uh, to criticize the dehumanizing attitude of the slaveholding colonists towards their slaves. The text on the right is a tasteful little publication that came out in 1942 entitled, as you see, Der Untermensch, the subhuman, under the uh, editorial supervision of Heinrich Himmler. So there's Godwin, there's Himmler, separated by centuries. Now let's contrast some of their views. This is, of course, not Godwin's view. He's describing the views of his, uh, of his fellow colonists in New England. 
The Negroes, though in their figure they carry some resemblances of manhood, yet are indeed no men. So he's saying they outwardly appear to be human beings, but inwardly, really, they're not human beings. Compare this to Himmler. Not all of those who appear human are, in fact, so woe unto him who forgets it. So here's the idea of of beings that appear human but are inwardly not really human. Back to Godwin. Africans are, according to the racists that he was arguing against, creatures destitute of souls to be ranked among brute beasts and treated accordingly. Himmler, although it has features similar to a human, the subhuman is lower on the spiritual and psychological scale than any animal. Jews are beasts in human appearance. So here we have the idea of rank, of higher and lower, which gets us to the idea of subhumanity. Now, in my analysis, to make a long story very, very brief, this is how we should understand dehumanization in relation to these two axes. When we dehumanize others, we think of them as having a human appearance, but really being non-human, and not only non-human, but of a lower rank, subhuman. Okay, that's the theory, in short. Now, Appiah's challenge. This is Kwame Appiah, a very fine philosopher. And Appiah argues that when we dehumanize others, we form a special kind of antipathy towards them. This attitude motivates acts of abominable cruelty towards the humanized others. And these acts and the attitude motivating them cannot be accounted for merely by the fact that the dehumanized other is conceived of as as a subhuman creature. So to take an example, uh, Nazis often describe Jews as vermin and on Appiah's analysis, and I think he's, he's correct, that was not sufficient to, to motivate and to explain the extraordinary brutal cruelty that was meted out to Jews. And we can find many, many similar examples. So uh, in, in order to, to get out what I think is a good response to Appiah's critique, I'm going to now take a detour initially through Freud and a couple of other writers and uh, we start with Freud's essay, The Uncanny, Das Unheimliche. And the way Freud uses Unheimlich and the other authors we're going to look at as well, he uses in a different sense than we use it, the term uncanny in ordinary English. You might say someone has an uncanny knack of, I don't know, predicting who's going to win the Euro- Eurovision Song Contest. Mm-hmm. Unheimlich here is creepy, it's disquieting, it's disturbing. And what Freud points out in his essay is that this is this state, this is a very distinctive state. It's something other than simple fear. And, and it would be quite interesting and informative to get at what this state really is, what drives it, what its properties are. Freud was riffing off a 2000, about 2000, 1906 essay by Ernst Jentsch, which was the first essay on the uncanny. And what Jentsch argued was that the uncanny, this quality of uncanniness, is a function of uncertainty about the ontological status of something. In particular, 
the inability to, to determine whether something is animate or inanimate. And apparently animate being is in fact alive, the uncertainty whether an, an apparently animate being is in fact alive, or conversely, whether a lifeless object might not in fact be animate. Now, this, this takes us to Masahiro Mori, a roboticist, who riffs on Yench. And Mori is concerned with the difficulties in producing realistic robotic simulations of human beings. What he argues is the more human-like a robot gets, the more uh, positively we are disposed to it until it's almost like a human being. And then we get what he calls the uncanny valley. It just seems creepy. There's a lot of empirical research on Maury's claims. Some of it cast out on exactly how Maury uh, uh, cashed this out. Uh, but all of this research suggests that Maury was onto something. OK, problem with the yench maury thesis. Although ambiguity with respect to whether a thing is animate or inanimate may be sufficient to elicit the feeling of uncanniness, it is not necessary for doing so. And you can see that from the following, right? That's indisputably uncanny, creepy, disturbing, disquieting. But the ambiguity is not an animate, inanimate one. Likewise, this. <laughs> What we have in both these cases are these weird mixtures of distinct ontological categories. So, beings that elicit the sense of uncanniness are thought to belong to two incompatible basic natural kinds, two incompatible kinds of things. Dehumanized people are felt to be uncanny because they violate the human-subhuman boundary. They are perceived as human, but conceived as essentially subhuman. They are metaphysical misfits, monsters. They are eliciting the feeling of uncanniness in consequence of their monstrous character motivates the abominable cruelty with which they are treated. So what's important, to go back to the Nazi example, is not simply that Jews are rats. Jews are ambiguous creatures. Our, their appearance pulls our mind one way, the essence that we ascribe to them, the rat-like essence, pulls the mind in the other way, and together these constitute them a monstrous sort of image, and that evokes this sense of horror or disgust, if one happens to be a Nazi. That's all. Thank you.